transition here I, I was thinking as we were singing that last song uh, about that reality uh, about it being well with our soul um, you know we experience what we're experiencing now but we know throughout our lives circumstances change uh, circumstances are always different um, but Christ's faithfulness the redemption of Christ uh, the life of Christ remains the same and I, I think about that I, th I think about the, the reality that we are journeying through and the end goal that we are journeying toward, the restoration wrought by Christ, the restoration of all things. Uh, we just got done seeing uh, this mountain that's in front of me. May it be thrown into the midst of the sea. Uh, you know, that, that's the reality that we inhabit. Uh, whatever the mountains are that exist in front of us uh, will be overcome in and through Jesus Christ. I think about that, and I think about uh, the importance of dwelling in the reality of Christ, of being the church. Uh, we can't be the church on our own. We can't do this life on our own. It points to the importance of community, of other people walking this journey with us. We're going to be digging into some of that and just kind of the, the, the communal nature of Christ's redemption and how we live that out as a people, as the church. Uh, but as, I, as, as we think in that direction, as we work our way towards that, uh, I'd like to spend some time in prayer uh, as a community, as a body of believers. Um, and, you know, though we are not physically present, uh, we are knitted together, melded together in Christ. Um, so I'd like to invite you to join me in this time of prayer. I'm going to leave some time open for you to pray on your own or with your family or whoever you're gathered with uh, to pray on your own and uh, just offer yourself to Christ in that way. So let's pray. Holy God, we pray our souls would just let go. Just let go. In this moment, and simply dwell in Your presence, simply trust in You. God, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather together in this way, to be in Your presence in this way, together. I'm grateful, God, for the work that You are doing in and through us. And I pray, God, that You would continue to use us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would grab a hold of us that You would breathe Your life into us. And that You would send us out into this world in, in new and creative ways to be Your presence, to be Your redemptive work in this world, to be Your hands and Your feet. God, we thank You for the hope that You have given us. I pray that we would be vessels of that hope in a, in a tough time, in a, a difficult time, a challenging time. But God, continue to knit us together. Continue to make us Your people, Your church. And God, just enable us to be about Your work in this world. We give You thanks for this unique opportunity 
this opportunity to, to witness in new ways, to be the church in new ways. And God, we pray that you would continue to build up your family, your, your children, continue to bring your children into your fold, embracing us fully, and continue to make us the community who would embrace those folks as well in your love, in your mercy. But God, in all things and all times, we offer ourselves to you and ask simply, God, that you would use us, that you would continue to mold us and shape us, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge and love of you and be transformed. God, all of this we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So friends, we continue in our sermon series talking about the nature of God's redemption. You know, it's interesting how we've been kind of tracing the story of redemption through the scriptural narrative. We've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament, uh, which is something we, we don't often think of as the Old Testament being consistent with the New Testament, the new covenant wrought by Jesus. But it's redemption that ties the whole scriptural narrative together. We find that our God is a God of redemption. We're going to continue talking about that. Uh, but as I said, we're going to talk about you know, the nature of redemption as it's lived out as a collective people, as a community. What does it mean to be God's family? We're going to dig into that. And to do so, we're going to read uh, from a, a, you know, a small, kind of lesser-known book of the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time in the book of Ruth. We're going to walk through the story that we find in Ruth. But I'd like to read uh, just a few verses uh, from Ruth chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. And this comes at the end. We'll fill in what comes beforehand. It says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we praise you for the redemption that we encounter in your scriptures. We pray, God, that you would speak to us here today, that we would encounter that redemption anew here today, that we might be transformed and empowered to go into the world as vessels of your great redemption. God, we love you and praise you. 
offer ourselves, this time, this space, our whole selves to you and to your glory. All in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we're going to continue to trace the story of redemption that we find in Scripture. You know, we, we often think of the Old and New Testaments as having just kind of a, a, a dissonance. Just a, a, there's a disparity between the Old and the New Testaments. That the Old Testament God is a, is a God of war and a God of judgment. And the New Testament God is a God of mercy and of grace. My hope throughout this series, as we continue on, is that we would come to see a consistency. A consistency in who God has revealed Himself to be. A consistency in how God has acted all throughout history, in creation, in and through His people. And come to know the weight and the extent of God's work of redemption in the world. And it's a redemption that can be seen all over in the world around us. Especially as I think about you know, the people we encounter. Especially as we think about what we're going through right now. It's a redemption that we can witness in the people around us. Even now. So if, if redemption is the theme that runs through and ties all of Scripture get together, then that must say something about the God we worship. If redemption is, is the ultimate theme that ties it together, it must say something about the God we worship. Our God is ultimately a God of redemption. We've talked about how this, this word, this concept of, of redemption did not originate with the Old Testament writers. Certainly not uh, with, with the New Testament writers. Not even the Old Testament writers. But it was a pre-existent cultural reality in the ancient Near East, that, that God used to make Himself known. And God takes that understanding of redemption and expands it beyond anything that, could have, that you know, even they could have imagined then or even we can imagine today. But because God's redemption is so rooted in the language and culture of the ancient world, it's really important for us to dig deeper into some of those cultural realities in order to understand the weight of what God is really doing in people's lives, what God is really doing in the world around us. So today we continue to trace that story of redemption through the story of Naomi and Ruth. And it's found in this you know, tiny, kind of somewhat obscure, three-page, three-and-a-half-page book in the Old Testament. But the story we find in Ruth is, is really about the redemption of her mother-in-law, Naomi. But it's a redemption that God realizes, that God brings about through Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, of all people, was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. How can God work His redemption in and through this foreign woman, no less? But this is the story of how God's redemption plays out in the creation of a nation, in the creation of a people, in the creation of a family. That's what we're going to talk about. But let's walk through the story. You know, in, in, in the book of Ruth, we in, encounter, the, at, from the very beginning, we read about a, a famine that has taken over the land of Israel. 
And it's a famine that has forced some of the Israelites to, to move to other lands in order to simply survive. But one of those immigrants was Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And they went to live amongst the Moabites. Soon after we get into the book of Ruth, we read of Elimelech's death, which in this culture would have left Naomi without a home, without protection, and without any means of provision. But fortunately, Naomi, she had two sons. The eldest being able to fill the role of the family patriarch. Patriarch. So, you know, we, we get to that point and, you know, for us, you know, all seems well for the time being. But Naomi, Naomi's son, sons, we read, both of them, they took Moabite wives, one whose name was Orpah, the other whose name was Ruth. Now, it, it was crucially important for Naomi's sons and their wives to produce sons of their own so that Elimelech's line could continue on and thus secure Naomi's protection and Elimelech's inheritance. But we read that after 10 years, just 10 years in Moab, both of Naomi's sons die. So Naomi is left with literally nothing. No husband, no sons, no means of providing for herself, no lineage to secure the family's land or inheritance. You know, in, in this culture, this was as close to a death sentence as you could get. Not to mention the shame that it would have brought on the name of Elimelech and his line. In this culture, such mis misfortune was often you know, seen as God's doing that they had fallen out of favor with God, or that this was judgment for past sin. And so this would have brought much shame on Naomi. So Naomi, she was helpless. She was desperate. So she decided to go back to the land of Judah. You know, this, this hometown of hers that by that point was no longer experiencing a famine. But knowing that things were hopeless for her, you know, a, a childless widow, she pleaded with her daughters-in-law, she pleaded with Orpah and with Ruth to go back to their mother's household. Please go back. Because at least there, they would be provided for. So Orpah, she, she kisses Naomi and, and does as she says, goes back to her family. But Ruth, she clings to Naomi saying that she would not leave her. So the two of them, they make their way to Judah and simply just try to survive, try to live. They'd go out and they'd, they'd glean some of the grain from the fields while their owners were out harvesting. Because it was written in the law that, that the owners, landowners at harvest would, would leave some of the grain for the most un unfortunate, for uh, the, the poorest of the poor to come behind and, and gather for themselves. So this is how Ruth and Naomi lived and fed themselves. There was one day we read that Ruth was gathering grain in a field belonging to a prominent wealthy man named Boaz. 
It turns out that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. But Boaz, he noticed Ruth in his fields, and he had heard that she was this foreigner, this this Moabite woman. But he also had heard what she had done for the sake of Naomi. That she had remained faithful to her in such a hopeless and desperate situation that she had essentially become Naomi's blood, in essence, her, her daughter. So Boaz, seeing Ruth there by herself, knowing that she had no one to protect her, decides to, to take her under his wing, her and Naomi, to protect them and to provide for them. But soon Naomi realized that they, they needed more than just charity, more than just goodwill. They needed security. Really what they needed was redemption. Now in this culture, whenever a woman was widowed, the next oldest living male sibling in, in the, the, husband's, the deceased husband's line was obligated to take her as his wife. And if there were no more siblings, then the next oldest uh, family member, the, the living male, was to take her as his wife. I mean, this seems very strange to us maybe even a little gross to think about. But we cannot look at this through our 21st century lenses. This Old Testament law was in place not not to weird us out when we read these stories in the Old Testament, but to ensure that a widow would not fall into abject poverty in a culture that placed no value on women when she lost her husband. It was to ensure that she would be taken care of and that the line of inheritance of of her deceased husband would be secured. But it just so happened that Boaz was the second closest male relative of Naomi. We read of another. And, you know, Boaz, he goes to this other man, finds him and says, hey, will, will you, uses this language, will you redeem her? Will you redeem her? And he says, no, I I will not redeem her because it would put my own inheritance in jeopardy. I can't do it. So Boaz takes on this obligation. He's unmarried. He knows the law. He knows what he's called to. So he takes on this, this, this responsibility. But Naomi, she now had a daughter who she could marry off to ensure her security inheritance. So that's what she does. So Naomi hatches this plan. It's, it's, it's interesting to read how, how much of a role Naomi plays in, in trying to make this happen. She hatches this plan to bring Boaz and Ruth together. And she sends Ruth all dressed up, all tarted up in her, her finest clothes to go and essentially seduce Boaz. And we read about Boaz, you know, on, on the threshing floor. He, he was drunk and asleep. Must be, I mean, it's in Scripture. It's right there. He's drunk and asleep. It says that Ruth went and uncovered his feet and lay beside him. We should note that that's, that's a euphemism. For something else. 
altogether. So in light of this, Boaz, when he wakes up, he you know, sees what's happened and he knows what's happened. And he decides to take Ruth as his wife. And by doing this, he was redeeming both Ruth and Naomi. Securing Elimelech's inheritance as well as the inheritance of Naomi's dead sons. This is redemption. In the Old Testament, this is redemption par excellence. And it was brought about by the faithfulness of a foreign Moabite woman. Elimelech and Naomi's lineage and inheritance was secured. To understand the importance of God's redemptive work through Ruth and of the lineage that was secured, it's important to note that Ruth and Boaz, they had a son. That's what we read at the end. This is, this, this is the happy ending that we read of and, and really some of the most important words that we read. They had a son. His name was Obed. Obed, Obed eventually had a son whose name was Jesse. Jesse had a son who would be named David. That David. Right? The, the sling-toting, giant Philistine-slaying David. King David. The one from whose lineage would come the Messiah. By God's radical, radical, and that, that's the word, radical act of redemption, through the woman Ruth, from the foreign region of Moab, God was securing not only Ruth and Naomi's future, but also the future of all of humanity and all of creation. God was creating a family, a new kind of family, a new kind of family that broke all of the traditional familial, national, and cultural boundaries. You know, from, you know, we learn basically from that point on, God's redemption was to be not just for the Israelites, but for all. And this redemption is ultimately brought to fruition, we know, in and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I was reading all this and I, you know, obviously just kept going back to the genealogy we find in Matthew chapter 1. You know, a lot of us, when we first pick up a New Testament, we open to the very first page, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, we encounter this list of names. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Just on and on, and it's just boring as all get out, and we wonder why in the world it's even there. But this genealogy in Matthew 1 is so incredibly important. There's so much communicated in this simple genealogy. It's, it's earth-shattering. You know, it isn't just a boring account of historical lineage. Matthew has the genealogy in, the, in there ultimately to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah. Son of David, Son of, son of God, Son of David. But it's also important to note who is included in that genealogy? He could have easily just left them out, but Matthew includes some, some unsavory characters. 
or unexpected characters, including for women. Now, this, this is astounding. Because I can assure you that all throughout Scripture and all of the genealogies we encounter throughout Scripture, there is not a single woman in any of those genealogies. And we have to remember that lineage and inheritance was traced through male heirs only. But here we have in Matthew's Gospel, like I said, four women. We have a prostitute. We have adulterers. We have foreigners. Not the type of people one would include to extol the virtues of one's familial lineage. Particularly the lineage of the long-awaited Messiah. So what's really going on here? As I said, through God's redemptive work, a new kind of family is being created. One not dependent on race or ethnicity or nationality or cultural boundaries. God's redemption throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, widens to include more and more of God's children. I think one of, the, one of my favorite Scriptures, I, I, like, I love the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, it's one kind of segment. We have to read that together. Often it's not read together. Romans 9 is re- actually read by some as just kind of a constricting of God's mercy and, and of God's family. But when we, when we read verses 9 through 11 together, we see that it's a radical widening of his redemptive work and of his family. But we can trace this throughout all of Scripture. You know, we read about Noah and the covenant made with Noah, and with that, God's redemption was made known to a man. We read about the covenant with Abraham, and that same redemption expands to an entire family. And from Abraham, we move through the covenant made with Moses, and we find that God's redemption opens to an entire nation. This continues with the covenant with David as the king of the nation of God's people, but with the new covenant. The covenant brought about by the spotless lamb, Jesus. God's family of children is expanded to include all people. All people. All people are invited into God's family. God's redemption in and through Jesus is for Everyone. Everyone. That can't be lost on us, folks. Every single person. You know, when we're going about our lives, ignoring people for the most part, right? Let's be honest. That's what we do. We social distance before social distancing was cool, right? Some of us more than others. But you think about it. Every single person we encounter in our lives, throughout our days, no matter where we're at, whatever context it's in, every single one of those people is a child of God invited into His family. Invited to experience that redemption. God's redemption in and through Jesus is for everyone without boundary, without exception. And for the entire cosmos. I like the word cosmos because it just seems bigger than when you just say world. Because when we say world, we just think about the earth. It's for the entire cosmos. 
everything that's ever existed or been created. And this radical expansion of God's redemptive work, this radical expansion of God's family, I think is foreshadowed in this simple story of Ruth and Naomi. The consistency is there. Even then, God was working His redemption to bring about this new, expansive family. A family that we call the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting to note that many believe that this this was written in a post-exilic period. So the the Israelites had experienced exile and they were coming out of exile. And any time they would come out of exile, they would always bring some of what they had experienced from that foreign land with them. All of the customs, all of the, the religious practices, the rituals and such. And they would almost meld them with their own Jewish, Jewish practices and, and rituals. This was problematic for God's people because they would largely forget all that... that God had, had given them and, and taught them and all, all of the, the, the sacrifices that they were to make. It would be lost on them. So there were actually laws that forbid intermarrying between you know, Israelites and, and foreigners in order to maintain their Jewish identity. But here we have in this story, this simple story, a foreign Moabite woman who ends up being the hero, the vessel of God's redemptive work. And this just proves that something new, something different is going on. God's revealing something about Himself that the Israelites hadn't considered before. God is working His redemption to bring about this new expansive family. The family that we call the kingdom of God. So I think about what that means for us here today. You know, Ozark United Methodist Church in the year 2020 and amidst a a pandemic that none of us have experienced before. Well, I think in this story is a call for us to see ourselves as part of God's expansive redemptive work in and through Jesus. That seems like a simple statement, but think about that. To see yourself, to see ourselves as a part of God's expansive, radical, redemptive work in and through Jesus. You know, we read all throughout that the the church is the first fruits of, of the kingdom of God. We are a witness to and a means of God's work of redemption here and now. We think about this. And you know, this just seems like such a, a lofty, just otherworldly calling. There's this calling, this idea that we have a role and a place in God's redeeming work. But I think about this, and I think, you know, the truth is the church gets caught in ruts. When I talk about the church, the church universal gets caught in ruts. Ruts of going through the motions of, of doing church in the same way, often getting mired in, in maintenance mode, you know, maintaining institutions, maintaining buildings, maintaining programs, maintaining a sense of safety and security. And this just becomes the way we operate. 
and what we focus on. But I think one thing that this pandemic has convinced me of is the the need to get out of the ruts. And one of the redemptive things that I see in all of this is that the church is being forced out of some ruts. This is a good thing. And I'm, when I think, talk about, you know, we're being forced out of some ruts in, in kind of a new way of being and doing things, I'm not just talking about how we worship and use technology. It's bigger than that. You know, I think about buildings. And buildings, they're gifts. You know, it's a place for us to congregate, to come together as the body of Christ physically. And that's important. But I also think that it's a gift that, at least for the time being, this building has been rendered obsolete. It has no use or meaning at this point. We always talk about the church as not being a building and about being the church outside the walls of the building. Well, the current realities have forced our hand. We don't have much of a choice right now. And rather than lamenting that, not gathering together, not being together physically, rather than lamenting that, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for us. As I think about that, I've, I've been consistently, you know, I keep hearing stories about you. Um, I keep talking to you, and I'm, I'm consistently amazed at what I hear about how, how loving this church community is. You know, we, we are a family I'm encouraged by the ways that everyone here is, is just reaching out to one another in, in the best ways that they know how, in, in creative ways. Checking in, caring for one another. Through that, I see God's redemption being lived out in a, in a you know, tough situation. That's how you breathe life and love and redemption into a situation like this. But I also think about, you know, in the midst of all of that, that I'm so encouraged by, I can only think that now is as good a time as any for us to expand our familial reach. Right? To reach out to others who are perhaps struggling during this time. To care for one another, but to also extend a hand out to someone else. And to live out Christ's redemptive work in creative ways amongst those who are maybe not a part of our community. Maybe those who look different. Maybe those who are rejected or find themselves on the margins. And, in, and let's be honest, in a, in a situation like this, those are the folks are usually, who are usually affected the most. The reality is that circumstances change. They always change and always will change. But our mission and our calling doesn't. Will never change. We are called to be the church. No matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, to be the church is to witness to the kingdom, kingdom of God, to witness to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And what an opportunity we have. Friends, my consistent prayer through all of this is that God's redemption would be worked in and through it and for God to use us in that. 
I, I invite you to join me in praying in that direction. To pray for ways that God would use us. You know, pray the prayer, God, use me. Which can be a dangerous prayer, let's be honest. That can be a dangerous prayer. But to trust in God, knowing the, the mountains that are in front of us will be thrown into the midst of the sea, and pray that simple prayer, use me. As we move forward, I, I trust that God will walk with us every step of the way. The Holy Spirit will empower and enable us every step of the way. And that God's redemptive work will be made known. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. Thankful for the work You have begun. Thankful for the work You are doing. Thankful for the work, God, You have yet to do. I pray, God, that you would continue to work in and through us, continue to use us, continue to knit us together as a family, as, a, as, as your church, as your people. But, God, I pray that you would continue to, to just bring to mind people in our midst, all around us, who are in desperate need of, of your love and your mercy, and, and help us, God, by your Spirit, to be vessels of that redemption, that, that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness, that that, that hope. But God, have your way with us. Use us. This we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. has quaked before, moved by the sound of His voice, seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken from my regard. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. Through it all, through it all, it is well. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and it is well with me. Be it from me to not believe, even when my eyes can't see. And this mountain that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on.
let go my soul and trust in him the waves and wind still know his name the waves and wind